Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and study and listen to, you, to what you'd have us to learn. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we do go through this. We ask you to help us to continue learning what you would have us to learn. In your son's name, amen. amen. All right, we're going to be in Joshua 24. We're going to continue the, the goodbye for uh, J- Joshua. And remember we said Joshua's goodbye is only two chapters. It's not an entire book. Like Moses' goodbye. He's uh, not near as long-winded as, as Moses was. But his message is very powerful. All right, Joshua 24, verse 1. Moses's? Yeah. That was spoken. Yeah, because Deuteronomy was spoken. Well, Moses never could not speak. All right. He was just one of his excuses that he made. Just to bring on, his excuse was he didn't want to serve God, so he made all kinds of excuses. And so God said, "Fine, fine. You got a problem? I'll let Mo- I'll let Aaron be your speaker." That but sounds, you're. We all have. We all make excuses, and yeah. Moses made yeah. lots of excuses. God, God called him, and he made all kinds of excuses. You know, who am I to go there? You know, I'm a murderer. You know, I'm this, that, and the other thing. I'm, I'm not this, and I can't speak. Uh, yeah, you got to remember one thing about Moses, and we're way off topic, but the thing about Moses was he was trained to be the next to be Pharaoh of Egypt. All right. Now I don't know if he was the next in line or anything, but he was being trained to be a ruler in Egypt. So when he made all these excuses to God, they were totally irrelevant because God had specifically trained him to lead the people of Israel and he let Egypt be the one that trained him. <laughs> so and let Pharaoh be the one that trained him, you know. So he knew how to run a nation, a large nation when he finally got to be the one that ran the nation. So, but you know, God does this a lot with us. He prepares us through sometimes some very bizarre circumstances to do his work. And it can be through our business work connections, our business training, our schooling, our education can train us to be just who we need to be in God's kingdom. And Moses was trained by Pharaoh to be able to lead the people of of Israel when it was time to lead them. All right, verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called to the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their offers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old times, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron and plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt." And you came out unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen that which I have done in, in Egypt, and you dwelt on the wilderness a long season. 
and I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwell on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them which from before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still, as I, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came into Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorites and the Pezites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgasites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them from into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even unto the two kings of the Amorites, but not with the sword, nor with the bow. And I have given you the land which you did not labor, cities which you built not, and you dwell in them, of the vineyards and the olive yards which you planted not, do you eat? So we're going to stop at the end of that paragraph. So here we have a history lesson very quickly being given by Joshua. What is Joshua trying to do in this history lesson? He's basically saying, remember what God has done. And we talk about this a lot. We need to remember what God has done, both in the past for our nation for ourselves but especially for ourselves and I've shared with people a good thing to do is make yourself a book of all the things God has done for you that so that when you are feeling miserable you're feeling like God doesn't love you God's not doing anything for you you pull out this notebook and you start reading all the things that God has done for you and do it when you're up <laughs> don't do it when you're down you know Start making this out and start really remembering this is what God has done. Because we all know how easy it is to get depressed when it seems like nothing's going right. And you know, whenever things start going well, Satan is going to attack and God's going to let him try to bring you down. So be ready. Be ready. Have in your mind what God has done. Joshua is going to be telling the people, look, we've had this great blessings. God has given us this, and he's given the history. What's he preparing them for? Well, he's preparing them for the next book we're getting ready to go into. Joshua, uh, Judges, when, when, yeah, uh, Judges, when everybody starts getting into sin, and God judges them, and they forget all the stuff that God's done. And Moses did the same thing. If you remember, all through the book of of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, John, uh, Moses kept going, this is what God's done. This is what God's done. This is what God's done. He kept reminding them, this is what God has done. And Paul, as he preaches, he goes, this is what God has done for me. And he kept going over, this is what God's done. Why? Because people need to be reminded about what God has done why I recommend we read the different autobiographies and biographies of all these great leaders of, Christian, of the Christian work because we want to know this is what God has done. The more we refresh our mind that this is what God's done, the better off we're going to be in the long run when we start going through these really hard times and you're going, well, you know what, Satan, you're really right. It is pretty tough right now, but... God's done this for me. He's done this for me. He's done this for me. He did this for the children of Israel. He did this for, for, for Saul. He did this for David. He did this for George Mueller. He did this for you know, Corey Ten Boom. This is what he's done in my life. This is what he's done in my family. 
The, and the more recent it can be, the better off because you start looking and saying, look, this is what God's done. Not in positive thinking, but it just reminds us. It reminds us that God is working in our life and that he loves us. Because when you're down, you start thinking, God doesn't care about me. If you get far enough down, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't like me. Nothing's going right. God must have forgotten about me. And, you, and you're real tempted to walk away from God. So here's Joshua going over with the people. And look how far back he goes. In, you know, in verse 1, he gathers all the people. Verse 2, he says, Thus saith the Lord God, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham. Which flood is he talking about? The river Euphrates. He goes, You used to dwell, our family used to dwell on the other side of the Euphrates. Where it's on the other side of the Euphrates? Babylon. All right? Babylon is over there. That's where Nimrod had his great powerful kingdom. That's where Nimrod started all the false religion stuff going on. That's where the idol worship started. It was in Babylon and Nimrod. He goes, you used to dwell over there. Terah, Abraham's father, lived there. Because that's where we come from. And he says, and the father of Nicor, and they served other gods. Terah served idols. There's a long history, if you get into like the history, about you had Eber battling against Nimrod. Eber followed God. He is the founding, the father of all the Hebrew nations that are, that are following one God. You have Nimrod on the other side, who's building up false religions and mystery Babylon, who's still the, the, the base of all false religions. He goes, Nabor worshipped other gods. And it says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now, I kind of like this statement. Now, number one, he takes Abraham. Abraham follows Eber's line. He believes in one God. Now, whether that started later in his life or the whole life, there's really not a real strong idea on this. But he, he walks with God. And it says, uh, you know, he walked all through Canaan. And then in the last part of verse 3, and it says, he multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. <laughs> now, it's kind of an interesting thing. His multiplication was one. <laughs> Uh, and you got to put yourself in Abraham's seed. God promised his seed was going to be as the stars in the heaven and as the sand of the desert. And what does he end up with? One son. And here is <laughs> Joseph saying the same thing. And his seed was multiplied and he was given Isaac. Uh, and I really kind of like this because how many times do we think that God has not done enough for us? We look at what God's done for us, and number one, we always focus on the negatives usually. And we go, God, I just don't feel like I'm blessed enough. Yeah. Abraham could have said, God, I don't feel like you blessed me. Where, where, where are my stars? Where are my, where's the sand? You gave me one son. And not only that, God, you waited until I was 100 before you even did that. 
so that he didn't have the ability to have another child beyond that, apparently. But you know, we've talked about this. Abraham had more children. After Sarah died, he married Keturah and had eight more children. Okay, when he was in his 110, 20, whatever it was, he had eight more children with another wife, with a second wife. He didn't give them any inheritance. He gave them gifts, but no inheritance and sent them away, much like he did Ishmael. But, you know, God, said, you know, he said, God says, I'm only giving you one child that I'm counting. I'm only counting Isaac. And so the story, you know, the story that uh, Joshua is given, he goes in verse 4, and I gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And I gave Esau Mount Seir to possess, but Jacob and his sons and his children went down into Egypt. So Isaac does much better than his father. He gets two children. And we're really having a multiplication going on here because he's told the same thing that Abraham's told. Your children are going to number as the stars of the sky and the, and the sand of the desert. Yeah. And he gets two children. You can almost picture these people going, God, when are you going to give us all these children that you keep promising us? And Esau was given Mount Seir, which is in the south, south eastern portion of the desert, just below the Dead Sea. We talked about that, where Israel, when it came up on the backside, was not allowed to attack Esau or J, uh, Lot's children. They says you're not going to take them. That they've got their land. It's been given to them. I've given them to them as a promise of Abraham. So they're not allowed to take those two places. But he says, the children of Jacob went down into Egypt. How did they get there? Well, jo uh, Joseph went first. He became prime minister. He was able to save Egypt and, and the rest of the world by, by saving the food. Does anybody remember how many people went down into Egypt? Huh? Seventy. Seventy. Uh, actually, sixty-seven because th uh, sixty-six because four of them were already there. But yes, seventy people in all. The entire clan of Israel, when it came down into Egypt, numbered seventy people. Two and a half generations later. They number close to three and a half million. Mm -hmm. now there's the multiplication. That's multiplication. <laughs> that was multiplication. They went to Egypt and they multiplied. In the beginning, was this algebra? <laughs> I don't know what was going on, but they were, you know, they they multiplied when they went down to Egypt. Something in Egypt really got them multiplied, and they, and they really, they really uh, multiplied. And they're going to leave Egypt at three and a half million. All right. So they get down in verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterward, I brought you out. Okay, so this is real, just a real quick summary of what God's doing. He's going, I, I, I sent plagues to Egypt. You know, doesn't, doesn't cover the plagues, doesn't talk about them. We know that there were 10 plagues, and the very last plague was the, the execution of the firstborn of anything living that wasn't inside a house that was covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And that was firstborn of children, firstborn of animals. Any firstborn that wasn't inside a house covered by the blood of the Passover lamb 
was killed, including Pharaoh's house. The door, the blood on the door, which forms a cross, which meant that was a protection of the cross upon, upon the people. So he says, you know, I did all this. And he's bringing up, he's bringing up everything. This is what God did for you. We started with nothing. We, in matter of fact, we started with people worshiping idols. Gave you, you came into Egypt, and he doesn't go into the, the 70 people, but they know the story. They know these stories. He's just kind of reminding them. You went down with very few people, and then you came out. And God did these miraculous wonders, trying to help them understand what wonders did God do. And we think about, you know, all that God's done for them. And, you know, sometimes it's easy for us to kind of look and say, well, how could they keep distrusting God every time they turned around with all these miracles going on? And you know what? I don't know. But I do know we do the same thing. How could we do the same thing, see all that God's doing around us, and still walk away from God? The problem is we stop seeing the miracles of God. We start looking at them and saying, uh, it's just normal. It's just the normal way of living. And then once we start saying it's normal, we start ignoring it. And then we start saying, God, you're not doing enough. And I think about this, you know, I, I comment a lot, you know, if you've ever bought a brand new computer and it races along and it's racing along and then three or four months later you're going, why are you so slow? And it's probably not really that much slower than it was when you first bought it. You just get used to it. And it's just not fast. How many of you remember the first microwave you bought? Okay, you went from cooking everything on the stove, taking 5, 10, 15 minutes to rewarm your leftovers, to being able to rewarm them up in seconds. And now we gripe and complain that it takes a minute and a half to warm our leftovers. Okay, this is what Israel was doing to God. They got so used to the blessings that they was giving him them that they stopped recognizing them as blessings. They would get food given to them every morning in the, food, in, the, in the form of manna. And after a while, they got tired of manna. You know, how many times have we done the same thing with God? God, you're blessing, you're blessing, you're blessing, and then we get tired of the blessings because we stop recognizing it as a blessing. You know, this is what happens. And he's trying to reiterate to them, look what God has done. Then he goes, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came by the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers and the, with their chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea, reminding them what it was like to be chased. And you've got to picture this. They are camped by the Red Sea. From the picture of Exodus, there's this narrow gorge and mountains that have pinned them in between the Red Sea and this gorge. And coming down this gorge is the Egyptian army. And they're going, you were dead meat, basically. There was no way you were going to get out of this. And he came with his chariots. And verse 7, And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought upon the sea upon them and covered them. And your, eye, and your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt, and you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. If you remember the story of the Red Sea crossing, the, the pillar of fire 
shifted from in front of the people to behind the people. And it said in there that it was light to them and darkness to the Egyptians. So whatever it was, it was dark on one, it was a filler now, filler of fire that had dark on one side and light on the other. All right, and that's what he's saying. It was dark to them, we had light, they had darkness. And then God opened up the Red Sea, they crossed the Red Sea, and God then said, okay, Pharaoh, you know, I'm going to give you one last chance, basically. You can retreat, and he decided to follow after them. Now, if you remember the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, as the charioteers were being charging in, God took the wheels off their chariots. So the chariots are bouncing along the ground, and still Pharaoh drove them on and said, you're going to go get them. And he made it to the middle of the Red Sea, and God closed the Red Sea on them. He put the darkness between them, and he covered them, and he says, and, and you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. I like the way he said that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 a long season, 40 years, no, no big deal. It was just a, just a season. <laughs> uh, kind of poetic, you know, and, and, and I kinda, it, is, it, is, it is considered a season. Uh, 40 years is a season. It's a period of time. And then he says, I brought you out, uh, brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave you their land, and you put that you might possess the land, and I destroyed them from before you in this day. And remember, this is where the two and a half tribes live on the east side of Jordan, and the Ammonites are one of the ones that they, they destroyed on that, and they're the first one that attacked them and, and caused them to fight uh, at, as they're getting ready to get into the promised land. All right, so he says, God gave you this land. And he's trying to remind, remind these people, especially when they get to the Amorites, because these people that are fighting for him now, they're the ones that have just got done fighting the Amorites. All right? They fought them. They remember when they were a new army without a lot of experience. And the Amorites were their first major test. I mean, they'd, they'd had battles and skirmishes before that. But this was their first major test. Here is a nation with an army that has been pretty victorious in their, in their time coming against them. And I don't know what that would be, kind of like the, the colonial army facing the, the English. We've got an army put together, never fought really, fought much battles, and now we're going to fight the, the, the number one nation of the world at the time. But here they are fighting the Amorites. Not necessarily the number one nation, but a very strong nation. And it says, God delivered them to you. And now we own their land. All right? Now he doesn't go into the other battles that they went into. But then he starts talking about, in verse 9, And Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose and warred against Israel. All right? So they beat the Amorites, and then Moab comes against them. And then we go back to the story, and he sent and called for Balaam, of son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam, therefore he blessed you still, and I delivered you out of his hand. Now remember the story of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for God, and Balak called to him and said, I need you because who you curse is cursed, and who you bless is blessed. Come and curse my enemy. And if you remember... Balaam went and prayed to God, and God said, no, you can't go with them. And at first, Balak was pretty good. Uh, Balaam was pretty good. He went to his people, and he told them, no, I, can't, I cannot go and curse these people because God has blessed them. 
go away. Next group of, of more important leaders came from Balak and said, you know, Balaam, we really want you, we're going to give you lots and lots of money if you curse these people. Come and curse them for me. He went and prayed and God said, no, you cannot go because I have blessed these people and you cannot go and curse them. And he sent them away. Came a third time. And Balaam went in and prayed and God gave him an answer. Does anybody remember back when we studied in Numbers many, many months ago, maybe a year and a half ago, does anybody remember what God told Balaam the third time? God told Balaam, if they ask you again, go with them. What did Balaam do? He went out there and said, okay, we're ready to go. <laughs> and he did not obey God. And we've made a long, long teaching on this when we were doing this. But, you know, oftentimes we do just what Balaam did. We know God said one thing and we go out and change it a little bit and end up being disobedient. So you misunderstood what he, so you misunderstood what he said or you just went and did what he wanted? Oh, he just did what he wanted to do. <laughs> he, didn't under, he didn't misunderstand God. He did what he wanted to do. He wanted the money. And that's when we have the whole story of Balaam and his donkey. And at the very end of that, the donkey talks to him as he's beating the donkey. And, he, and the donkey talks to him and says, what have I done to you? <laughs> Haven't I been a good donkey? I've served you really well. And then he would hand her back like. And the thing I've always thought was funny was just that. You know, he talked with the donkey like this was an everyday occurrence that he talks with his donkey. Now, I know that most people love their animals and they tell me that their animals talk to them and everything, but Balaam actually talked to his donkey. And this donkey answered him and, and actually initiated the conversation. And he just talked to this donkey like this was an everyday event. It didn't seem to phase him at all. And so we see this whole event that goes on. And he says, and I delivered you out of his hand. Because when he got to Balak, he could only bless Israel. Three times he blessed Israel. And Balak started really getting mad at Balaam. And Balaam would speak and, he would cur and a blessing would come out. You know, three times. God threw the mule, yeah. Yeah. Balaam blessed them, and then if you remember, Balaam finally ended up telling Balak that if you really want them to be cursed, send in the women, get them to to worship your your gods and their God will curse them. So you use the donkey to stood out the only way you would actually pay attention. Listen to what he said. Apparently. How many times do we do the same thing, though? We, we will do things, and God has to do really harsh things to us and speak to us in some very bizarre circumstances sometimes. It seems like you'd, you'd, be, you'd be less apt to listen to something God said that you should do. Well, let's, put it, let's turn this around. Let's say that you are actively, actively walking against God. Are you listening to, are you, number one, reading the Bible? Probably not. Are you listening to God at that, after that point? Probably not. Are you even going to go to church? Probably not. Why? Because God might just speak to you out of all of those things. So you avoid them. So how does God have to talk to you when you're in disobedience? He makes your life miserable and tries to get your attention by making things miserable for you. And sometimes, you know, kind of an amazing thing sometimes is how... Even a lost person can give you a message from God. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've had that happen, you know, where somebody has said something to me, 
and they were not saved, but yet they were speaking God's truth through their words. Now, they weren't quoting Bible, obviously, but the words out of their mouth were so convicting because the Holy Spirit was in them. God can use anybody, anything to communicate with us. If we want to be so stubborn that we won't go to church, we won't go to the Bible, we won't listen to a teacher, God will use the world to speak at us, which is the equivalent of using the donkey to speak at us. You know, the, the, law, the person at the bar who gives you a message from God that's, you know, totally out of place in their mouth, you know, they, they might be a simple of, well, I thought you were a Christian. What are you, what are you living this way for? And all of a sudden that goes like a knife into your heart and it's not them, it is God speaking through them to, it's God you know, speaking through the donkey in one sense because they're not his, they're not his, his child and he's using them anyway. God does not need anybody to speak for him. He can use anything. And he can use a, the worldly person. He can use the worst sinner to be the one that is convicting you. And he could literally, if he wanted to, use an animal, literal animal if he wanted to, to convict you. That's what he did with, with Balaam. Uh, but I've seen it. I've seen it in my life. When I, was, when I was walking away from God, I had some things come at me from, from the lost world to just like, what did you just say and why did you just say it? You know? <laughs> Uh, that sounds just like what I would expect one of those Christians at the church to be saying, <laughs> coming from the world. Yeah. They don't understand what happened. They don't even know why they said what they did. It was God speaking through them just as when we speak with him in, and we're walking with him and he takes over our speech. And I don't know if you've ever been there where you're talking with somebody and you're going, wow, this just a... I don't, I can't speak this clearly. I can't speak this co coherently. Look what, listen what's coming out of my mouth. And you know that God is the one that's putting your, the words in your mouth. And he puts them in the, wor the mouths of the lost sometimes. He'll put, you know, he'll put it through our circumstances. God can use anything, anyone, anything to communicate with us. And that's what he did with Balaam. And so we see that he, he goes, Balaam blessed you. You know, ended up doing a curse, but. <laughs> and then in verse 11, and you went over Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men, and the men of Jericho fought against you. You know, how, how quick that topic was. You know, the, the, the miracle of Jericho. <laughs> Walking around the city and having the walls fall flat. Not much of a battle. Those guys were in shock. Their walls fell flat. <laughs> And it wasn't because of superior weapons. It wasn't because they fired a bunch of rocks at their wall and beat them to, for, to dust. They just fell down. And can you imagine, you know, you're standing inside of a building and all of a sudden you're, the walls of the building just fall flat. Uh, especially if you were depending on that building to be your defense. And then he, then he goes in, and the Amorites and the Pezites and the Gerg Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and I delivered them into your hand. Now I happen to know those names. Those are easy names. <laughs> those are said so often. Those are names you read all the time. We'll be reading them for the, quite a while yet. But those are all the inhabitants of Canaan. Their cities are a little different stories. The nations I can name pretty easily. The, the, the cities were a lot harder when we were going through those. 
And he goes, God says, I delivered them to you. And we think about this, we talked about that, a seven-year battle to take the entire promised land. And they conquered all these nations that quick. And these were strong nations. These were not weak nations that they're talking about. These are strong, strong, strong nations. Then he says, And I sent hornets before you that drove them out before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, and not with your sword nor with your bow. And again, remember, we've had these different stories. God used hornets to drive people out. He sent hailstones to, to kill more people. And remember in the southern battle, he said more people died from the hailstones than from the battle. Uh, in the battle of Jericho, probably more people died in the collapsing of the, of the wall, even though it doesn't say so, because they would have been manning, the men would have been manning the, the walls. And these were very tall walls. They were, you know, they say they were, very wide, very tall, so there were people on the walls probably manning it, that many of them died while they were, when the walls collapsed. So we see that God did miraculous battles for them. You know, and this is the good news for us as Christians. God miraculously defends us if we will just let him be our defense. When, when people come against you, we don't need to get all bent out of shape and start attacking back at them and defending ourselves. God is our defense. Our best bet is to just pray and say, God, help me show them kindness. Help me show them mercy. Help, help me show them grace. And let God be our defense. And he will. Is there time to, sp time to speak up? Yes, there's times to speak up, but make sure that it's God being the one that's telling you to speak. Otherwise, you end up making a big mess out of, the, out of it more often than not. And there's times when we, that we're to do things, but you know, our biggest thing that we can do for people is to show them love. When, you know, Jesus said that we're to love those that despitefully use us. You know, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy when it's the world that comes against you. And you know what? It's definitely not easy when it's another Christian doing it to you. But at times it is, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to be merciful to them. I'm going to show them love. They're attacking you. They're trying to tear you down, and you just love them. You know, because God is your defense. If they want to continue trying to tear you down, God will deal with that. But you just love them. You be kind to them. Because they're trying to make themselves an enemy, be kind to them, love them just as you would have before they were before you were before they were your enemy. <laughs> you know, and while they're your enemy, love them anyway. It is amazing what God will do when we love other people. When we just show them God's love, initially it might make them angrier at us. So don't get me wrong. They don't immediately just stop attacking you. But when you show God's love back to them going to convict them. And initially when they're convicted, they may come back even harder and stronger against you and you just need to continue showing God's love. And you keep honoring God in that process and let God be your defense. How do many people get over these things? Again, we look at these different autobiographies and biographies and watch how these people just love their enemies. Does that mean everything's going to go perfect when you love your enemies? No. <laughs> A lot of bad things can happen. 
Paul loved his enemies and many times he ended up in prison. Many times he got beat. Many times he got injured out of the process. Jesus loved, it, loved his enemies and they put him on a cross. Many martyrs have loved their enemies and because they loved their enemies and did not speak evil and, defi and revile the people that were killing them, their testimony shines out even to this day. We read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs that goes over death after death after death and watch how people responded to the love that was shown. They showed them love and people were convicted by that love. Even when they died in the process, they were convicted by that love. Uh, Elliot died trying to mission trying to witness to the Inca Indians. And because of his and his other friends' deaths, the Indians finally came out and talked to his wife and said, we don't understand why he would do this. And she and her family then moved in with the very tribe that killed her husband and, and the other missionaries and evangelized them. Why? Because he died. And he died in a way that made a great impact on the Indians. And then she showed them love and not anger when they came and talked to her. Yeah, it'd be very hard to do. You can't do it without God. We cannot love our enemies without God being the one that loves them through us. Because that is not human nature. Our human nature says, you're going to come against me? <laughs> Just wait till I get a chance to get back at you. Now, you did this to my family? Oh, you just wait. I mean, you're going to pay. That's human nature. Human nature is just that. Attack people and get back at them. God's love to them says, I'm going to love you because what's most important is that you go to heaven. Not that you end up being struggling with us and having to go to hell. Our goal as Christians should not be that anybody goes to hell because God's will is not that anybody goes to hell. He wants to show all the grace and love and mercy that he can to people to draw them into heaven. Now that means sometimes he does, he does harsh things to them. Book of Ezekiel, the famous statement all through the book of Ezekiel that we keep reading, God did all this so that they would know that I am the Lord your God. All right? God will oftentimes do it, but that's not our job to do. Our job is to love people and when God does all these hard things to them, we come up and try to help them pick up the pieces and say, God loves you. He's doing this because he loves you. He wants you to stay away from all this. And this is what he says here is, God did this thing. You didn't do it by your own strength. You didn't defeat all these people by your own strength. He goes, God drove them out for you. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have any battles. We know that that's not true. They did a lot of battles. There is a time and place for us to, to step up. But for the most part, we say, God, I'm going to watch you be the one that does the, the, the work. I'm going to watch you be the one that's victorious. Yeah. And not lift up his hands. And the apostles did not raise their hands up in defense of what they were doing. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter grabbed a sword and he was ready to fight. Yeah, he was ready to fight the entire 
you know, guard that was coming to arrest Jesus, he would have died and he knew that he was going to die and he was ready to, he was ready to fight to, to save Jesus. And Jesus' words were, put your sword away. Those that live by the sword shall die by the sword. And we need to understand that when we try to defend ourselves against attacks, we're going to end up being, we're, in the, we're going to end up dying from it. Maybe not physically, but our reputation will end up dying. We let God be our defense. Let God live through us and be our defense. The result of all of this in verse 13, and I have given you the, a land which you did not labor for and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and all vineyard, vineyards and olive yards that you planted not yet you eat. He says, I've given you a ready-made nation. It's kind of amazing sometimes when you let God give you the blessings. And you start seeing his blessings and all of a sudden it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to, to do what God says to do sometimes and then you watch the blessings that he just pours on you because of what your obedience. You know, the idea of giving God 10% tithe and living on 90% makes no sense. And yet when you do it, God blesses. Being kind to your enemy and watching how he turns their heart and softens their heart makes no sense to our flesh. You know, spending time with God and his people makes no sense, and yet we watch what God does to grow us from those, that attitude. Surrendering to God and doing what he wants rather than what I want, which is oftentimes doesn't make any sense. And you watch what God does for you as he gives you a ready-made kingdom, and he says, here's your blessing. Here's, here's the blessings for being obedient. Here's your blessings for just trusting me. And it's an amazing thing most of the time when you just look back and say, God, wow, look at all that you've done for me. Look at all the blessings you've done and all I had to do was rest. All I had to do was rest. The greatest thing about the Christian life is it is nothing but faith rest. I rest in God by faith. Now, he sometimes will make me work hard in that rest, but I, I rest in him and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And I start listening to him. But I don't strive. The more we don't strive, the more God blesses us. <laughs> Again, one of those things that just doesn't make sense. God, you want me to quit trying so hard and you're going to bless me? And God says, yes. I want to be the one that works through you, God says. Just relax. Let him work for it through you. Let him speak through you. Let him do these things. If you find yourself feeling all stressed out, you need to step back and say, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Because I'm trying to do something. That's why you're stressed, because you're trying to make something happen. And it's time to just step back and say, okay, God, what do you want? How are you going to make this happen? You know, how am I going to be taken care of in this situation? God says, I am your father and your Lord, and I will take care of you. The old, the old story about uh, people going out and having their fathers take care of them, solve their problems. You know, God wants to take care of our, father, our problems because he is a good father. He wants to fix our problems. And you know what the real secret is? Even if we created them, he wants to fix them. <laughs> Most of the time, if we create our problems, 
We go, nope, can't let God fix this one because I deserve what I've got because I created my problem. And God's saying, I don't care if you created it or not. I want to fix your problems. And he will work on fixing our problems if we will just back off and let him take care of them. Even when you deserve whatever's coming your way, God says, I want to fix this. The prodigal son, you know, father, I, you know, I want my inheritance. Basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. Give me my money. I don't want to wait for you to die. He gives it to him. He wastes his money. Okay? And most people, when they get a large amount of money, waste it. They don't know how to handle it. He wasted. It says he lived with riotous living. And I'm sure he had lots of friends to help him spend his money. While he had money, he had lots of friends. As soon as he didn't have any money, he had no friends. And he found himself feeding pigs and decided he was going to go back home just to be a servant. He says, my father's servants live better than I'm living. I'm just going to go back and be a servant. And the father welcomes him back with open arms. That's the way God is with us. Even when we cause our own problems, God says, you're my child. I want you back. I am going to fix your problems for you. Now, does that mean we go out and cause lots of problems in our life just because God's going to fix them? I go out and I sin a lot just because God's going to forgive me? As Paul said, God forbid. We're not to go out and do these things on purpose, but when we do them, God fixes the problems. Doesn't mean there won't be any consequences for our disobedience. There's always consequences. But God makes them work together for good. He makes them better for us even when we cause them. He will make them happen. And that's what he says. I've given you an instant-made country. I gave you this, I've given you cities that are fully built. I've given you homes that are fully built and not only fully built, fully furnished. I've given you orchards and vineyards and, and farms fully ready to go. He <coughs> says, all you got to do is live in them. God has got blessings for us if we just let him give them to us and watch what he does for us. And our ultimate blessing, of course, is heaven, but he also has physical blessings for us in this, as we walk in this world as long as we learn to rest in him, in faith rest. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we do this week and give us direction and Help us to see what you would want us to see in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.